So hello and welcome to Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and today we're going to plunge a little deeper into the river of causation which we have been swimming through for quite a few episodes now. And because we've been swimming for a few episodes what I want to do is begin by offering something of a formal argument for you to help kind of sum up where we've been so far, what kind of waters we've been swimming through. So let's start with Proposition 1, which was basically Episode 6. And that is, if we're going to do metaphysics, that is, if we're going to ask the question, what is the nature of reality, uh, we must begin responding to that question by examining cause and effect. That is, when we look at any phenomenal thing, such as a rock or a Honda Civic, we should ask the question, what is this thing in lieu of its causes and conditions? So the proposition is that's really how we get the best kinds of answers to reality questions. And uh, you may remember I claim this is always a very central feature of different disciplines of knowledge, from the hard sciences to things like history and economics. So that's where we began. And then proposition two, which was really episode seven, was turning that question more to the subjective side, that is more to our own lives as human beings, because we also live in reality. We're not just theorising about rocks and Honda Civic, we're theorising about our own lives. The proposition is if we want to understand our own lives well, we must understand how reality functions. And that means we must understand how causation functions in the context of our own unfolding everyday lives. That is, we're not that different from the rock. If we want to understand ourselves, we must also ask this question, who or what are we in lieu of our own particular causes and conditions? Proposition 3, which was also in episode 7, contained kind of a diagnosis of the core problem, which is basically this. If we look into this clearly, this uh, question of who we are in relation to causes and effects, we'll see that we are really highly determined by that, by causation. That causation in many ways deeply constrains us. It stops us doing what we want to do. Uh, and I offered this kind of rather glib metaphor that we are like the horse and it is like our rider. And for that reason we often try to escape in one way or another from these very unpleasant facts of the matter, because we actually want to be free. So we try to find freedom in other kinds of ways. And I really claim that most of these ways are actually rather fruitless and lead us deeper into constraint. Proposition four, which was really the last episode, episode eight, is that the first step we can really take to lessening that deep constraint is to see with some kind of clarity and precision all the different causes and conditions which shape and constitute us to be who and what we are. That is, we have to see with, with real clarity and precision our own particular causal matrix. And to do this well, I put it to you that we probably need some form of analytical meditation. A form of meditation which is exactly our own minds really looking into this issue. Okay, and that doesn't imply you have to sit cross-legged in some formal way or become a Zen practitioner or something like that. No, no, no. Any way that works to uncover 
and reveal your own particular causal conditions or assemblage is going to be effective. So that's as far as we've gone. And uh, you'll note, uh, especially the more diligent philosophers among you, that thus far we have four propositions and no conclusions. So uh, I think we could say at this stage we have at best uncovered the nature of the problem, but not really resolved it. This is in itself quite a big step. Because if you can diagnose a problem correctly, then the chances of successfully resolving it really increase by a manifold. You can think about this in very practical terms, uh, say in terms of business problems or medical problems or even problems that sporting teams have or any other real-world practical situation. It's the not seeing or understanding the nature of the problem which is really the most distressing state of affairs. So imagine for a moment if we really had no idea what the coronavirus actually was and we're just watching all these people getting struck down by a kind of virulent form of pneumonia but we had no idea what the causes were. Or if we ascribed completely wrong causes to the virus. So for example, so we saw these people getting sick and then we inferred that it had something to do with eating broccoli or dare I say using 5G internet or something of that nature. Uh, and I'm sure you know in medieval times people would go off and burn witches in times of pandemic. So, you know, that's definitely a faulty inference. So I'm glad they were at least not doing that at this stage, but, uh, you know, we're still early days into the pandemic, I suppose. At the moment, in terms of COVID, we may not have fully resolved the issue, but we have a kind of a confidence that we probably will uh, in terms of a vaccination or something of that nature, or at the very least know how to minimise transmission and you know, work around its causes and effects. So in other words, we have a pretty good understanding already of its causes and effects. And to know the nature of this is always very, very good news. So back to our own river of causation. To have four propositions and no conclusion is still very good. To get even this far with respect to the problems and the possibilities of causation is, is actually very, very powerful and, and very profound. Nonetheless, today I'm going to take a more positive or constructive step in beginning to actually resolve the problem. And this is going to entail coming to grips with the implications of causation as it unfolds with us in its midst. Because some of these implications, if you look at them closely, are in fact really inspiring. So the beginnings of a conclusion will start to emerge here. So let's jump in. The inspiring bit of causation is directly tied to a kind of temporality or time. So the sense here is that anything which is happening causally is necessarily in motion and happening through time. So going back to the old boring pumpkin analogy, the seed becomes a sprout, and then a seedling, and then a big plant, which offers its fruits through time. Okay, it doesn't just happen in one instant. It begins growing in spring and summer, and it begins to fruit in autumn, right? So this is a really obvious point. Causation happens through time. What's less obvious is that we need to think of ourselves in the same kind of way. 
that we are happening causally and we are necessarily in motion, in process, and all of this is happening through time. You know, so to put the matter really bluntly, our parents had sex, the sperm met the egg, we grew in the womb, we came out, we learned to talk and walk and get educated, and etc, etc, etc. And here you are. And if you analyse in this kind of way, you see there really are an extraordinary number of past causes which we are currently the effect of. So past causes shape us in all sorts of ways and, and we need to see ourselves as deeply implicated and shaped by these past causes. So this is really the sense in which we're very determined. The past has made us who we are and we really can't undo that. It's kind of already happened. Who you are is wrapped up in that causal unfolding. However, although past causes have shaped us in very particular ways, we do have some agency in the present to shape our future conditions. So in other words, there's a really amazing loophole in the system which is precisely our possibility of exploiting or harnessing the present and therefore shaping the future more intentionally or consciously. So when I mentioned a few episodes ago that there's some malleability in the way cause and effect operates, if you examine properly, this is really, really what I meant. And this doesn't happen in spite of cause and effect or kind of next to it, or alongside it, or transcendent of it, which is uh, the way of cheap fatalisms and idealisms. It happens in direct connection to the reality of cause and effect as it is unfolding, in relationship to it. So that is, what we're doing is exploiting or harnessing the very mechanics of cause and effect rather than finding some other way. And the loophole is simply that causation allows for this possibility. Or, more precisely, our agency as humans allows us to relate to causation in this kind of way. <clears throat> so I'm really talking here of actively and consciously and intentionally generating particular causes in the present which you have a pretty good sense will give rise to desirable effects and conditions in the future. So. What does this mean? Well, this is something we all kind of know about already, at least on a surface kind of level. I mean, most of us are to some degree very future-oriented in a way which is thoroughly underpinned by causation. You know, and that's why we may go off and study things we don't necessarily enjoy. Uh, we study them because we know or assume that they are causes which are likely to give rise to certain kinds of careers. And those careers in turn will give rise to certain kinds of high wages, which in turn will give rise to certain kinds of good material living standards, etc, etc, etc. So this kind of causal logic is, you know, it's kind of indoctrinated into us at a very early age. The education system it's itself structured on this causal axiom. You know, that if you do A in the present, if you go study A in the present, you'll become and get B in the future 
and that will allow you to get C further down the track, etc., etc., etc. So we all know about this already. The economic system is quite similar. Many of us in adult life try to build assets or capital. And this can only be accomplished by using present causes to invest in future good effects. So, you know, successful business people almost always have a very good basic pragmatic knowledge of how to exploit causation by sowing good financial crops in the present in order to reap future good returns. I mean, a good investment is nothing other than this. It is the exploitation or the harnessing of a logic of causation and, and time. And it implies having good knowledge of what financial causes will lead to future good effects. So you get the basic idea. And the idea is that the present always contains causal opportunities. It is in fact pregnant with possibilities. We have choices. We have some kind of agency to make choices. It's not unlimited agency or unlimited choice, which would be nice, but is ultimately a fantasy. Often both our agency and our choices are really quite limited. Sometimes extremely limited, but there's always some room, always some malleability in our present situations to sow good causes which lead to future good effects. So even if we're in very difficult situations, we usually have that possibility. And that's the inspiring bit, and it's actually very inspiring. I think actually turning to fitness and bodily health shows us pretty nicely the sense in which we have some agency and choice, but also the ways in which past causes strongly determine us, and that the two are really interacting in any given moment. So you can think, for example, about the fact that we all have genetic propensities for various kinds of diseases. But we also have lifestyle choices which are in our own hands and may either mitigate or hasten those very propensities to get or avoid those diseases. So it's both of those things together. It's a recognition of how we're determined by past causes alongside the recognition that the present contains possible choices which lead us in good directions. Okay, so that's the basic template. That we're highly determined by past causes, but in the present there are at least some possibilities for sowing causes which will give rise to future good effects. And let me say that this template is itself so, so precious. You, know, you never feel defeated if you have a good understanding of this. So let me just expand on this to finish up. I think there are kind of two big issues we need to get a handle on. Uh, the first one is, how exactly do we exploit those possibilities or choices in the present? In other words, what is our agency exactly? Where is it found? How do we make use of it? And the second issue is, how do we actually determine or know what are the desirable future effects or conditions for us? And therefore, what actual causes we can plant to generate those future effects? That is, how do we actually work out what is good or valuable 
And then what causes those things to arise in the future? So I'm going to respond to those two issues and that should probably do us for today. The first one is really, really tricky. You know, where is our agency? What is it? How do we harness it? Oh, such a big question in philosophy and science and the social sciences. And I don't really want to say too much about it. I certainly don't want to give a whole theoretical analysis of it. What I do want to say is that agency itself is not necessarily a given. It may be present, and it may in fact be present very robustly and tangibly, but also it may not. It's uh, highly variable, you know, it's a matter of degrees. Now when I say agency itself is not necessarily a given, I really mean some of us do not actually have very much agency at all. We may be swamped by various kinds of emotional and mental events, a lot of the time, maybe all of the time even. Our thinking may be very heavily influenced by external forces, from marketing and advertising to ideology to strong authority figures in our lives or wrong belief systems, or in the worst case scenario, all four. We may be extremely busy getting constantly pulled in this direction and that, and therefore really always just responding to necessity. We may even be prisoners or slaves in a position of exploitation and disempowerment. We may have cognitive impairments from a brain injury or a mental illness. And you know, the list of things which diminish agency could be a lot longer, but you get the idea. Having agency is not a given. It's something that may or may not be there, and even if it is there, it may be there to different degrees. That is, it might be there weakly or strongly. So we shouldn't just assume that there is agency. And the real point here is that agency itself has to be cultivated. It has to be developed and then made strong and robust and reliable. That's really the key point. But what actually is this thing? What is this thing that I'm calling agency that we must cultivate and develop that may be there or may not be there? Well, you know, I'm going to sound like a real philosopher here and say that it is at its root a kind of cognitive capacity, a capacity to think. Certainly rationally, but not only reasonably, also intuitively and creatively and originally and independently. I think it's also a kind of reflective capacity, a capacity to have clarity and concentration of mind such that you can see and analyse things without too much distortion. And I'd add to that a kind of decision-making or choice-making precision, uh, which I think runs pretty close to how many modern economists and some ethicists think of as utility. This is kind of an ability to know what your desires are and then to logically allocate values to them so that you can order your preferences and then act on them. So, people can have these kinds of cognitive capacities to different degrees. And the point is that to gain more agency in relation to causation, one really must develop and cultivate these capacities. Because it's only with those sorts of abilities 
that you can actually exploit the present and then intentionally sow causes which give rise to future good effects and conditions. And I'm going to be really blunt here. If you don't do this, you really are kind of stuffed. Because these capacities are your one and only ticket out of causal constraint. They are your one chance to become the rider of the horse and therefore to be able to shape the direction that you ride in. So if you're not a slave or cognitively impaired and you don't make some effort to further increase and develop your agency, then it's kind of like winning the lotto but never bothering to cash in your ticket. And then probably complaining about poverty. In other words, the capacities you have as a human being are your lottery ticket. But you have to be able to cash it in. Now, there are of course technique or method problems here. You know, there's nothing easy about developing and increasing and then utilizing your agency. It really is hard yakka. The work is hard and the gains you make are very hard won. Which is probably the biggest factor in why most people, or many people at least, don't really bother or look for a quicker, easier way towards freedom and happiness. And there are so many dodgy, quick, easy, false avenues to walk through on that front. I have already talked quite a lot about methods for increasing your agency in the early episodes in the series around knowledge. So for example, we looked very closely at reason in episode four. So I'm not going to rehash them here. I'm just going to add one further tool, uh, which is the much exalted and much misunderstood mindfulness, which so far we've only mentioned briefly in the series. Mindfulness is very, very important here because if you did not have it, then you would not be able to see the relationship between causes and effects. That is, you actually forget them you'll be mindless of them. So mindfulness helps you see the relation between causes and effects and indeed the temporal sequence of past, present, future. It has today become strongly correlated with the kind of a doctrine of living in the now. That is staying really attuned to the present, being present doing the dishes and brushing your hair and eating your food and all that kind of stuff. And it is true that mindfulness is necessary at times to prevent one's mind running off into past memories or into future desires. But it's not really about living in the now. It's much more about seeing clearly how the conditions of the now that you inhabit are fully constituted by past causes and that the causes you sow in this now will give rise to future effects and conditions. So in other words, mindfulness always has a kind of temporality connected with it. The Sanskrit smriti really means recollection and awareness, and both are necessary to this task of clearly seeing the relationships of causes and time. And we can think about this in terms of its opposite or contrary, and let's call that mindlessness. Imagine you're very drunk, 
when you're very drunk, you're neither very bothered about the past nor worried about the future, which is why people drink, right? You're much more living fully in the present, just dancing or conversing, being a bit reckless and free. But the hangover that you experience the next morning tells you about the price you paid for living in the now, for abandoning causation and temporality, and for purposely forgetting that the present contains the seeds of the future. So mindfulness is a non-forgetting of this, not the forgetting of it. So I will revisit this uh, in later episodes. But let us turn to the other key issue here, which is how do you know or decide which causes to cultivate in the present? Another way to state this is, well, what kinds of future effects and conditions are really desirable for you? And how do you know how to generate the right causes which produce those effects? So as mentioned earlier, in terms of education and career and finances and wealth, most of us have had this nailed into our heads from a young age. So we kind of get it on one level. But usually it takes some success on this front to realise, okay, good, I kind of got that. I got the material conditions I was aiming for. But there's a lot missing. Being an accomplished accountant hasn't ensured me of happiness and freedom and all the other things that I really, really want. So something must be missing. I think in terms of body, we also generally have a really good sense of this. And we can think about our knowledge of causation connected to health and fitness and diet and all those sorts of issues, which collectively in the 21st century we all know a lot about. Now, I don't mean to exclude the body here because, of course, it is good and desirable to be fit with good diet and be healthy and all those things. And yes, you do need to sow the right causes to get those effects. But that path is really well trodden. It's everywhere you look these days, from organic food to personal trainers to yoga and wellness studios and gyms, all that stuff. As a material culture, we've really begun to nail the causation connected with the body. But in the very same breath, we must also consider the explosion of anxiety, depression, mental health helplines, crisis centres and all the rest. If something has gone missing in our approach to causation, it is clearly connected with the mind and the emotions. And at this point, I think we stumble directly into the great ethical and spiritual traditions, both East and West, which really think about this question of future effects and conditions in terms of mental dispositions or character traits. So the great ethical traditions, I speak here of the virtues tradition of ancient Greece and Rome, the Shramana or yogic traditions of ancient India, and the Confucian stream of ancient China, are, for all their differences, really united in seeing a causal relationship between present mental and emotional dispositions, the virtues and the vices that we sow in the present, uh, the character we develop through time, and then the future possible happiness or flourishing that we experience. Now this is really, really big topic. 
but it is also the quintessence of exploiting or harnessing the possibilities in causation. And it's something I'm going to expand upon in the next episode. But to leave you today just with the pith of this approach, it really is simply this, that one can develop virtuous mental and emotional habits through time. And as one actually accomplishes this, almost like magic, happiness, flourishing, freedom, well-being, all that kind of stuff, they become manifest in your life rather than wistful pipe dreams. So there is an intimate connection between a person developing virtuous dispositions and then experiencing flourishing and happiness in their lives. The two are more than correlated. They are causally connected. So the sense of the present being pregnant with possibilities is quintessentially this. Even if your present conditions are really, really shitty and there's a lot of struggle and difficulty, there is always the possibility of developing the virtues in the present. And these will ripen. They'll ripen in a manner not so different from the pumpkin seedling giving rise to a whole bunch of pumpkins. But you cannot develop virtuous dispositions with the click of a button or the reading of this book or that book or the doing of this course or that course or the adoption of this technique or that technique. It can only happen through time with great effort and diligence by harnessing the very mechanics of causation. That is, the virtues are caused. And so it follows that happiness, flourishing, well-being, etc. are also caused. By what? Well, by the kinds of intentions and actions that you consistently enact. I think it's very much like a business's profit. You could look at the balance sheet after 20 years of hard work and say, ah, well, there's a healthy profit. But what is that profit really when you examine it? Well, it is the effect of many causes. Day after day, week after week, month after month, buying, selling, working, organising, relentlessly producing, <coughs> relentlessly acting. So the profit is produced through time, through causes and effects, through actions and their fruits. And a human being is very much the same. And it's not easy to produce virtues through time. So the people who you know who are good people, virtuous people, uh, with kind hearts and bright minds and various kinds of talents, it might look like those things are just inherently there. But that's an illusion. Those things are just like the profit of the business. It was never just inherently there. It got there through cause and effect, through relentless action. Okay, so I've given kind of a rough template here. I don't think I've really sufficiently answered the second question, um, namely, how do we know what specific causes will give rise to the future desirable effects and conditions? I think to really answer this sufficiently, we need to be clear not only about how particular causes are connected to particular effects, but also about what kind of future conditions we actually want. That could be very highly variable depending on what kind of person you are and what kind of life you want to lead. So it's tricky. Um, both of those bits are really tricky. 
And I'm going to try and flesh that out next episode by taking one particular future condition as kind of universal. And this future condition is love. A future which has plenty of love in it. I think it's a given that all humans want love in one form or another. We always feel like we want a little bit more, or maybe a lot more. So I'm going to start with that predicate in the next episode, and then work backwards by asking, what are the causes which produce that kind of future effect and condition? So I'll pick it up there next time. Thank you very much for listening today. Please don't burn any witches. Um, They're not the cause for the COVID outbreak. And stay tuned for more episodes at aratehouse.com.au.